Well, over these uh, past few weeks, my time with you has been short. Uh, I wanted to challenge you in the first week of having faith and believing God. Don't fear what the future may hold. Uh, the second week I was here, we talked about uh, the challenges sometimes that come our way. And holding fast to the promises of God, knowing that He does have a plan and purpose for all of us. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? That we can trust that God's purposes are sure and will be completed in our lives. And so that was in Jeremiah. We went from Numbers to Jeremiah. And today we're going to turn to the pastoral epistles. And I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 3. And this week we're going to talk about the qualifications of a pastor. This is a very important thing for this church as you're in an interim period. You're, you're seeking uh, to move forward to consider who will be your next pastor. And I want to remind you today that God gifts his church with pastors. They are a gift from God. In fact, the book of Revelation says they're angels. I know you find that hard to believe sometimes, but they are. They're messengers of God uh, to the church of God, and they are a blessing to the church. And so today I want to talk to you about what are the qualifications of a pastor. And then next week, uh, in my fourth week, I want to talk to you about what is your responsibility to your pastor and what is your responsibility as a Christian in the local church. And I hope that will help kind of prepare your hearts for what God's doing in the life of the church and where you're going uh, together in the future. Well, let's read in verse number one of chapter number three of 1 Timothy. It says, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So if you have your Bibles there, just turn over a few pages to the book of Titus. Titus, also a young protege of Paul, uh, received words from Paul regarding the qualifications of a minister. Uh, chapter number one, uh, verse number six through verse number nine is another list of qualifications of an overseer of a bishop. And let's begin in verse number six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so today, let me just talk to you for just a few minutes, a little uh, message on this subject. What are the qualifications of a pastor? Daryl Robinson in his book, Total Church Life, says that after hundreds of years of fruitless efforts, 
Finally, a model minister has been found to suit everyone. It's a guarantee that he will please everyone in the church. And so I want to share this little wonderful uh, resume of the perfect pastor. He preaches only 20 minutes, but he thoroughly expounds the Word of God. He condemns sin, but he never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. doing every type of work from preaching in the pulpit to janitorial work. He makes $200 a week. He wears good clothes. He buys good books regularly, has a nice family, drives a nice car, and he gives $50 to the church each week. He stands ready to give to any cause also. His family is a complete model in deportment, dress, and attitude. He is 26 years old and he's been preaching for 30 years. He is tall, he is short, he is thin, he is heavyset, he is handsome, has one brown eye and one blue eye, hair parted in the middle, left side dark and straight, right side blonde and wavy. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and to spend all of his time with older people in the church. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor, but he keeps himself seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched, and he never is out of the office. Well, that's kind of a funny little uh, resume for a pastor, but indeed the pastor has a lot of high expectations. Not all pastors are the same. Not all pastors are gifted in the same way. But many times the church congregation has expectations about what they think the pastor ought to be doing, how he ought to be spending his time, what he should be doing in the ministry. Let me just say to you, the two primary responsibility of the pastor is to preach God's word and to pray. The Bible is very clear about that. Those are his two responsibilities. And though those should be his primary responsibilities, those are not the only expectations that most churches have of a pastor. And so in meeting those expectations, caring for those people, and fulfilling the work of the ministry, there's many, many tasks that the pastor has. So your, your understanding of what the next pastor ought to be like Maybe a, a little unrealistic. Maybe your expectations of what the pastor is supposed to be is not keeping with what the Bible says the pastor ought to be. But let's talk about today some of the qualifications of the pastor. First and Second Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. They're concerned about the care of the church. Timothy was facing a heavy burden of responsibility of the church at Ephesus, Titus, Titus was a young minister on the island of Crete. Both had challenging assignments, to say the least. Shepherding the people of God is not for the faint of heart. Can I get an amen somewhere? The pastor's task is always challenging. There's false doctrine to be erased, public worship to be safeguarded, and mature leadership to be developed. Paul speaks directly to the conduct of these two ministers who were his protégés in the ministry. So as we look at this passage today and Paul's writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy, he reminds him of his calling, he reminds him of his character, and he reminds him of his conduct as a minister of the gospel. And I want to remind you that whether we use the term overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, shepherd, Paul is referring to all the same things, all three terms, elder, of his maturity and experience. Pastor refers to his feeding and caring. And uh, all of these embody the same position. In fact, in Acts 20, verses 17 and 28, all those terms are used in reference to the same 
person. In Titus 1, 5, and 7, they're used in reference to the same person. And in 1 Peter 5, 1, and 2, it refers to the same person. So the emphasis of these two uh, profiles, even when combined, is not all-inclusive of the essential values or Christian values for a pastor. And so uh, neither list says anything about the person's commitment to Jesus Christ and his understanding that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God incarnate. doesn't say anything about his Trinitarian beliefs. It doesn't say anything about the person's love for Jesus Christ and his people. But does a congregation need to give leadership to a, a pastor who does not love them and care for them? The person's sense of mercy and judgment, does a congregation dare grant leadership to someone who does not demonstrate a good balance between godly mercy and justice? Should a pastor exhibit the fruits of the Spirit? Indeed, he should. Should he exhibit the Christian graces? Indeed, he should. As an elder overseer profile in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, helpful and valuable? Certainly it is. All these profiles are not inclusive, considering all the information that we might consider about a candidate for the pastorate. No. Can a person fulfill these qualifications and not provide spiritual guidance to individuals? That question, I think, is deserving of some reflection this morning. Can a person be a Christian? Yes. Can every Christian be involved in service? Absolutely. Can every Christian man provide the congregational leadership in the role of elder? The answer is no. That level of leadership is reserved for the person who has a level of maturity, a level of commitment, and a level of proven character to lead the congregation closer to God and His eternal objective. You know, sometimes it can be possible to be so concerned with the do list in a Bible way that we forget all the scriptural purposes. A man who is deeply spiritual may not fulfill all of these objectives as we find in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. A congregation should always include the biblical principles of leadership with the biblical profiles of leadership. And I illustrate today the 7th century American Puritan by the name of Cotton Mathers had a powerful ministry in Boston. And he wrote a volume, which I've read part of, called The Student and the Preacher. And in that volume, The Student and the Preacher, he had a section called Directions for the Candidate of the Ministry. And in that, he speaks of his view of the worthiness of the ministry. And listen to what he says, I quote. He says, The office of the Christian ministry, rightly understood, is the most honorable and important that any man in the world can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and the employment of eternity to consider the reasons why, in the wisdom and the goodness of God, assigned this office to imperfect and guilty man. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men, to display in the most lively colors and proclaim in the clearest language of wonderful perfection, offices, and grace of the Son of God, and to attract the souls of men into a state of everlasting friendship with Him. It is a work which an angel might wish for an honor to be on his character, yea, an office which every angel in heaven might covet to be employed in for a thousand years to come. It is such an honorable, important, and useful office 
that if man be put in it to by God and made faithful and successful through life, he may look down with the disdain upon a crown and shed a tear of pity on the highest and the brightest monarch on earth. End of quote. Well, Cotton Matthews had a very elevated sense of calling and the office of a pastor. Will Sanger, who preached in Westminster Hall in London in World War II, wrote, I quote, called to preach, commissioned of God to teach the word, a herald of the king, a witness of the eternal gospel. Could any work be more high and holy to this supreme task, God sent His only Son. In the frustration and confusion of the time, it is possible to imagine a work comparable as important with that of proclaiming the will of God to wayward men. Not by accident, not by a thrustful egotism of men, was a pulpit given the central part of the church. It is there of divine and devotion. It is there by logic of things. It is there as the throne of the Word of God End of quote. In fact, the very outlay of your church emphasizes the importance of the Word of God. It's central to all that we do here as God equips His church to do the work that He has called us to. As God blesses His church and grows His church, this is the primary means in which God ministers grace to the people of God, challenges the people of God, and helps fulfill the work of God. So when the Lord ascended on high, He gave, the Bible says, gifts unto men. And it's noteworthy that these gifts were men set apart for various works. He says in Ephesians 4, He gave some apostles, He gave some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, from which it is evident that certain individuals are, as a result of the Lord's ascension, bestowed upon the church as pastors. They are given by God and consequently not elevated to their position. God is more interested in leaders who evidence character than who elevate their spiritual gifts. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to Him. He says in Ezekiel 22.30, I am looking for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. I want to say to you today that God is still looking for good men, godly men, godly leaders, those who meet these requirements. And so today, you may be here. God may be calling you. God may be speaking to you. God may be leading you to surrender your life to the ministry that God has called you to. When I sensed God calling me to ministry, I was a sophomore in college. Uh, I had a round of prayer time with God one night, and I said, Lord, I will never uh, uh, be a preacher. I'm unqualified to be a preacher. I cannot speak very well. And one of the worst grades I made in uh, uh, the university at Duke was in public speaking. It really terrified me to get up and speak publicly. But the Lord said, I will decide who I choose. In fact, so I tested God out one night, and I, I went to my room, and I put on my my sports coat, and I said, Lord, I can never preach, but I'll give it a try. And so I had my first sermon in my dorm room that night. Within weeks, I was preaching at a rescue mission in Durham, North Carolina. They made everybody in the rescue mission listen to a sermon on Wednesday night, and they'd have to put out their cigarettes, and they didn't get any dinner if they didn't listen to the sermon. And that was my first 
experience in ministry. And I remember the first night I was so eloquent. I took all the theology and all the Bible that I'd accumulated and all of my knowledge, and I gave them some more humdinger of a lecture that night. And it went over like a lead balloon. They all stared at me like, who is this guy? And so the next week, I decided to change up my approach just a little bit, and I drew a picture of a cross. And I said, how could we ever get to a holy God? And I told them that the cross was the means by which people could be reconciled to God. I drew a little picture of a man coming to the foot of the cross. I drew a little picture of him being accepted by God. And that night, a young Marine came forward and professed his faith in Christ. That was the beginning of my ministry. God still calls people. He may be calling you. Robert Murray M. Cheyenne wrote to his missionary friend, Daniel Edwards, in 1840. And he said, Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument, a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talent God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. So let's look together at what the scripture says about the qualifications for a minister of the gospel and just keep them in your mind as you pray and as you move forward as a church, as you think about your next pastoral candidate. Number one, I want to talk to you about his calling. The Bible says that the person who aspires to the office of a bishop desires a good thing. There's a sense in which if God calls you to a task, he will put a desire in your heart. Jeremiah said, it's like a burning in my bones if I don't proclaim the word of God. And as a minister of the gospel, if I don't have an opportunity to preach and teach and share God's word, there's something missing in my life. I look forward to this time every week of just being with you and sharing God's word. Why? Because he has given me an, a desire to aspire to this good work. So a bishop or an episcopal, an overseer, one in general oversight of the ministry is used often interchangeably. We've already talked about that. Spurgeon, the English prince of preachers, said there are four distinct parts to a call of God. And this is what I, have, I think I've shared so many times with young men who tried to ask themselves the question, is God calling me to ministry? Number one, the first sign of a heavenly call is an intense, all-absorbing desire to do the work. A thoughtful desire examines our motives, a passion which bears the test of trials, a literal, a literal famishing to preach the Word of God. So if you don't have a burning desire to share God's Word, to teach God's Word, to proclaim God's Word, more than likely God is not calling you. So there's an all-consuming desire. The second thing he says, there is the ability. There must be an aptness, aptness to teach and some measure of other qualities needful for the office of public instructor, Spurgeon said, I quote, sound judgment and solid experience must instruct you. Gentle manners and loving affections must sway you. Firmness and courage must be manifest and tenderness and sympathy must not be lacking. You must be fitted to lead, prepared to endure, able to persevere. There must be a measure of conversion under your work and efforts. Number three, and then number four, the will of God concerning pastors is made known through the prayerful judgment of His church. It is needful as proof for your vocation that your preaching 
should be acceptable to the people of God. So what does that mean? It means that those who surrender to ministry, aspire to the office of ministry, have a giftedness in ministry, the church must recognize that giftedness and also affirm that giftedness in the pastor. And so normally the way that takes place in a church, I surrendered to ministry, began immediately preaching in a rescue mission, shared with my church. I felt like God was calling me to preach I shared that in the morning service. That night, the Lord gave me the opportunity to preach my first sermon as a 21-year-old before my home congregation. And I want to tell you what, I gave them all I had out of Ephesians chapter number 2, and it was terrible. Uh, but the Lord used that in my life, and they sensed my desire and my giftedness and my calling, and that began the process of serving God and preparing my heart. So there's this calling that He must demonstrate if if he took it up as an occupation, if he took it up because he couldn't do anything else, if he took it up because he enjoyed the lifestyle of the pastor, he's uh, not very smart, let me just tell you first of all. He's not very smart. If he took it up because he thinks he likes golf and he only has to work one day at a week, he has no understanding of what it means to be called of God to ministry. So there's his calling. The second thing I want to talk to you is about his character. So the question I would ask a pastor, tell me how God called you to ministry and why do you feel like you're qualified to be a minister of the gospel? Listen to the answer, should answer the question about his calling. The second thing is his character. The Bible says here that he is to be a person above reproach, blameless, no uh, accusations, must in the Greek is simply put there to emphasize something that is an absolute necessary. It's absolute necessary that this man be blameless. That's the basic overall qualification. And by the way, it's the Greek verb and the present particular verb to be. He must be in a present state of blameless. It doesn't mean that he's never committed a sin in his life. It doesn't mean in the past there wasn't something wrong. It does mean that in the present he is blameless no one has been blameless all their life. It's not a question of what he does years in the past. It may be a question of what he did in the recent history or maybe a few years ago. But that, but that is still a blight on his life. But the idea is in a present blameless. He's under no accusation. He hasn't uh, embezzled from the church. He hasn't committed uh, some type of sexual sin. He doesn't have a terrible testimony uh, before the community that he was in. If you can't get really, really good positive references out of uh, the pastor where he served previously, he's probably not going to have a good testimony in your church today. Recently, I served on a pastor search committee for Emmanuel Baptist Church in uh, Hannibal. And one of the things we did is filled, had our potential candidates fill out an application. I'll be happy to share that with anybody in the church. We had a church profile we had a community profile. Uh, we had a Hannibal profile. And then we had a questionnaire because when you advertise for the pastoral position, you're going to get 200 resumes from men who half of them aren't qualified for ministry. Half of them can't find a church to serve. And uh, so you're going to have to weed through a bunch of those. So we decided to use an application. Tell us about your call to ministry. Tell us how you came to know Jesus. Tell us about some of your doctrinal beliefs. Why do you think God's calling you to this church? Other questions that we asked them to fill out. You know, it was very instructive. Uh, we had people actually call the church and chew the secretary out and uh, say all kind of manner of things to her about how ridiculous it was for us to ask a minister of the gospel to fill out an application of whether they felt called to come to our church. 
And I thought, how revealing because they disqualified themselves in the process because they weren't take, willing to take two hours out of their precious busy day to fill out an application to see if indeed this was the will of God for our church and their life. And so I said to our committee, let's set the bar high. We just don't need resumes. We need men who are called of God, who feel committed to come to our church and to serve our church. And the Lord blessed that process. And I commend it to you. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to talk to you about it. So he must be a man who is blameless, above reproach. He's to have a good testimony within the church and without the church. And I think that's important because your pastor represents your church. You want to be proud of your pastor and the pastor also wants to be proud of you. So you need to represent the church well if you expect him to represent the church well. And the second thing it says here, he must be the husband of one wife. First of all, he is to be given to one woman, a one-woman man. The Greek text says a one-woman man. That's not a phrase related to whether he's married or not. It's not a phrase related to whether he's ever been married before, whether he has previously been married before his conversion or after. It's not concerning the status. It's, not, it's concerning his character. It's not a matter of circumstances. It's a matter of his virtue. And the issue here is that a man who is solely and only and totally devoted to his wife, it is a question of character. He is a one-woman man. Anything less is a disqualification. And uh, I have a whole sermon on this one point. And if you want to invite me back, I'll give it to you. Uh, we don't have time this morning to go through all of this. But one thing that we must emphasize here is very, very clear. He must be a one-woman man who is committed to one woman for life. And I know there's the question of, what happened before he was converted? Was he married before? Has he been divorced? Was it a legitimate divorce? Can he be qualified if he's had a divorce in his past? And I would just say simply to this, it would be seem extremely rare occurrence for a man who has had a divorce, whether biblically allowed or not, to fulfill the role of the elder in the local church. So if for some reason my wife and I were divorced or separated, then I would be disqualified for the service in the ministry. It doesn't mean that God does not forgive people. It doesn't mean that God does not use divorced people. It doesn't mean that divorced people are second class. It does mean that divorce can be a stigma which follows the pastor for life. At the same time, however, it is true that divorce is often a stigma and it has tragically become a stigmatic reproach for many. God's grace can cover the sin, but the consequences sometimes have lasting effects. And so the Bible says divorce is something that should be very, very, very rare. But unfortunately, it's become all too common within many church congregations. The third thing that it says about the pastor is he's to be temperate and self-controlled. Temperate basically comes from the word that means wineless. He is not out of control of his faculties by being under the control of some excesses. Some other influences such as wine. He is unmixed with wine. It's the root word idea. And metaphorically, it carries the idea of being alert, a watchful, someone who really is clear-headed. Nothing clouds his mind or his vision. He has no excesses. He has moderation in his life and everything to be seen clearly so that he can control the diverse elements of life and be a model of virtue. The Bible is clear that the bishop also, I believe, should not be given to wine. And so 
What's the best way to avoid this pitfall in your life? I'm a teetotaler. Uh, does the Bible prohibit all use of alcohol? No, but I would encourage you to take the admonition of the Word of God that uh, alcohol is a divisive, it's a destructive, and it's a powerful uh, stimulant that has caused many, many heartaches, not only in the life of unbelievers, but also in the life of believers. If you've ever been a pastor and you've counseled people and you've spent time with people, alcohol has had devastating effects upon the family financially, abuse, torment, pain, agony, and heartache. So my encouragement to you is to abstain from alcohol. The third thing that I see here, he's to be simple, sensible. He should be simple too. Sensible, sober-minded, and spiritually stable. When a person is clear-minded and they order the priorities of their thinking in a well-disciplined way, it will result in what's translated here as good behavior. The idea here is the word a cosmon, which comes from the word cosmos, which means a system of life, the network of values, both human and divine, and satanic. They interplay with one another in the dimension of time, space, and man's existence. That's the system of the world. That's the cosmos. It's an ordered system. It's the world in which we live. And he must be a person of order living in an orderly way. I would just put it like this. He should have a good biblical worldview. How to live in the world. How to conduct oneself in the world. And how to teach God's people to live their life in an orderly way. He will fulfill all the duties and all the responsibilities of life. Because he's controlled by that inner order, that well-disciplined spirit. He thinks on right things. He's clear-headed as we, as we saw. As a result, he now knows how to line up his priorities and to show some order in his life. His life is orderly. You see the discipline of his heart and mind and the discipline of his duties and his actions. You give him responsibility and he does it. He can get his act together. He can, if you want to put it in just regular vernacular, he has his act together. He can do what God has called him to do. And then the third thing that I see here, which is so very important, is his conduct. His conduct. How is he to act? Uh, what a burden to bear, but it's part of the challenge of being a leader. It's part of the challenge of being an overseer. He is to have good behavior. You see, it doesn't only apply to children, but it really applies to the pastor. He's to be self-controlled. He's to be, he doesn't lose his temper. He, he doesn't uh, say unnice things to the secretary over the application to fill out in order to be considered for the pastoral position. He's respectable. He's not an embarrassment to the congregation and would in many ways distract from the reputation of the gospel, Christ, and his church. He's given to hospitality. That means he loves people. He enjoys being around people. He loves to host people. He has an open door policy. He has the ability to love on people. He's also able to teach. He's skillful in teaching. Part of the preaching assignment is teaching. And um, preaching and sermons have so many different uh, flavors and types. And God communicates through personality. I know some of you look at me and say, he's too rapid for me. He's too long for me. He's deep in the text, too deep in the text for me. Uh, we don't like his hair. We don't like his looks. We don't like this or like that. But really, the, the simple things could be are simply this. Can he teach? Can he preach? Can he de deliver God's word in an able manner? The Bible says he's not to be a drinker. It is strongly encouraged that any man who is qualified for the ministry be able to demonstrate that he is not given to wine. 
the one very good way to do this is his commitment to abstain from alcohol beverages, which is easily accomplished in the modern world. I grew up in a dry county, uh, and Baptists were totally against alcohol. I understand that. Uh, my grandfathers, before they came to Christ, were alcoholics. And so when they came to know Christ, they stopped drinking. And so in my house, it was a taboo. It was something to be avoided at all cost, and for very good reasons, because alcohol brought pain and heartache into our families. It caused adultery, unfaithfulness. It caused harm to the children. It caused financial harm to the family. And so when my, both of my grandfathers came to Christ, they no longer participated in alcohol. It says here they're not to be pugnacious in the King James. It means not violent, not quarrelsome, not combative in nature. If you don't have control of your temper, you'll not make a good overseer or pastor of the church. It says here they're not to be greedy, which means they're not to be lovers of money. And that's an important thing. But a man who has given himself to the life of the ministry of the gospel, it is okay for him to receive remuneration for that as he serves the people of God. And technically, if you have 10 tithing families in the church, they should be able to support a pastor. And a pastor should make a living necessary so that he fulfills his responsibility as leader of his home to take care of his family and to take care of his children. So take good care of your pastor, but he shouldn't be a lover of money. <laughs> the Bible says here he's to be gentle like a shepherd. Like a loving father, he's to be gentle. He's to be peaceable, which means not quarrelsome. He's to be free from the love of money, not covetous. He's to rule his own household well. What does that mean? <laughs> does that mean he has a perfect family in every department? No. But it does mean, I think, simply this from a leadership standpoint. How the man leads his family, how the man conducts his family, is reflective of how he will lead, direct, and guide to the church. So if his children are out of control, if his children are all unbelievers, if there's problems in his home, then more than likely he would not do a good job as pastor in your church, nor would he be qualified. I know some very smart, some very qualified, some very gifted men whose families are in shambles. And the Bible says that this person should also rule his house well. It means he's a good manager. It means he fulfills the biblical roles of men and women. Always the man is seen as the head of the household. Uh, he's to lead his house. It's obviously their shared responsibility between the man and the woman. And there's a sense in which a woman's responsible for many tasks in the house, but he is to rule over them well as an elder. He is given evidence to do that kind of thing by how he has ruled his home. He is therefore to be a leader in his home. He is to be a strong spiritual leader in his home. And I'll say to you from my perspective, being a spiritual leader in your home is a lot more difficult than preaching sermons. It requires a great deal of effort. It requires a great deal of persistence. And so to be a good spiritual leader in your home is a reflection of how you will leave the people of God. And so the Bible says he's to be well experienced, not a new convert. So whoever you call to be your next pastor should have some track record of consistent leadership, not someone who's recently come to know the Lord. As my friend in an evangelism conference one time, uh, there was a man in the congregation who had recently come to know the Lord and he asked him to give his testimony. And in the first five minutes, he had so many explicatives, uh, uh, the pastor had to ask him to sit down. He was so overjoyed to share about his new faith in Christ, yet his, his vocabulary hadn't caught up in terms of his discipleship. And that's 
ought to be the case with someone who is called to ministry. They should be well experienced. And then finally, they should have a good testimony, a good witness to the world. Simply put, you should be proud to call your pastor your pastor. He's to be exemplar in conduct. He's to be committed to the Word of God. He's to have an all-consuming desire to preach the Word of God and to minister to God's people and to see them grow in their relationship with Him. The old saying certainly is true, you cannot judge a book by its cover, is certainly true of preachers. One of the most gifted, one of the most talented, one of the most anointed men of God I saw in 25 years of ministry and 25 years of serving seminaries in Southern Baptist life was a young man who was a pastor in Burnt Swamp uh, in North Carolina. Burnt Swamp Baptist Church or association he pastored in. He was relatively unknown. He was quite simple in his appearance. He wore a black suit and a thin black tie that day. I heard him preach in chapel, but I've never heard a more anointed and gifted man than this man. He pastored a very small church in a place of almost anonymity, but he was probably one of the most anointed men I've ever heard preach the gospel. Some of the most anointed men of God or called of God are not the most eloquent. They're not the most handsome. They're not the best dressed. There's men whose hearts are aflame with the word of God. And the Bible says of all men born of woman, there's never been a greater. And that is who? John the Baptist. He wouldn't have fit our character quality traits for a pastor. He dressed in some strange clothes. He ate some strange food. He had a very prophetic message that he preached to the people of God. But Jesus said of man born of woman, there was none greater than John the Baptist. He wore camel skins. He ate locusts and honey. He appeared in the backwaters of Israel to proclaim the good news of the Messiah. And like the morning star that is seen before the rising sun or the moon that reflects the glory of the sun, John was God's chosen champion to herald the message of the coming King Jesus. God is still in the business of calling men to pastor and to teach His Word, to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, when God's man surrenders to the will of God to serve his people, it's a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. And the pastor is to be the under-shepherd or the under-rower. As Peter says, the pastors are to shepherd God's people. They are to know that stewardship to which they, have, they will have to give an account to God. What a weighty matter to know that one day I will have to give an account for the souls in which I've shepherded and been a part of. I tell my pastor all the time that he's the shepherd of my soul. He's to watch over me. He's to care for me. He's to encourage me. He's to rebuke me. He's to admonish me. He's to teach me in all things. I close with this. Jonathan Edwards lived from 1703 to 1758. He was a brilliant theologian whose sermons had an overwhelming impact on those who heard him. On one particular sermon, one of his most famous entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God moved hundreds to repentance and salvation. That single message is included in most uh, English literature books that study the history of American literature. The single message helped to spark the revival known as the Great Awakening. From a human standpoint, it seemed incredible that such far-reaching results would come from one message. Edwards did not have a commanding voice. He did not have an oppressive pulpit manner. He used very few gestures. He read everything directly from a manuscript 
Yet God's Spirit moved upon His hearers with conviction and power. History tells us that when people came that day to hear Him preach, even before the message started, people were beginning to hold on to the pews because the Spirit of God was moving. Few know the spiritual preparation involved in that very famous sermon. John Chapman, in his book, gives us the story. He says, I quote, For three days, Edwards had not eaten a mouthful of food. For three nights, he had not closed his eyes in sleep. Over and over, he was heard praying, quote, O Lord, give me New England. Give me New England. End of quote. When he rose from his knees and he made his way into his pulpit pulpit that day, he looked as if he had been gazing into the face of God. And even before he began to speak, tremendous conviction fell upon the congregation. He was indeed truly a man called of God. He had the qualities necessary to fulfill that call, and he had the character that was consistent with that calling, and he preached the unsearchable riches of Christ to God's people. I pray that in the coming days, God will give you such a pastor that will love you and serve you and lead you in the days ahead. Would you pray with me today? Father, Lord, it's good to come together as your people around your word. Lord, uh, my time here has been very brief, and so there's so much that I want to say, so much I want to do. So much, I think, is necessary as we think about your next steps for First Baptist Church, Shelbina. God, I pray that you'll bless your word today. Lord, that you'd speak to your people, encourage them, bless them. Lord, it could be today that this message came into the heart of a hearer who will respond to the call of God in their life to serve you and to give their life in service for your kingdom. Lord, we love you today, and Lord, as we come to a time of invitation, Lord, we'd be remiss if we didn't extend the gospel that those who today would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart could be saved and those who are willing to turn from their sins and trust him could know eternal life and hope of heaven and forgiveness of sin and so today we invite all who would be willing to receive him and to believe to come and Lord confess you as Savior and Lord we commit this time of invitation to you in Christ's name Amen